What's better than free money? How you choose to spend it, of course. Right now, open a new CQ checking account and we'll give you $250 to spend however you like. Upgrade those headphones, splurge on concert tickets, or maybe upgrade to ad-free streaming. The choice is yours. And extra cash isn't all this credit union offers. Do your banking, build credit, and invest in your future. All with CQ. Visit CQMD.org today. That's S-E-C-U-M-D.org today. Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most. Because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be continuing coverage of the Judge Rotenberg Center in Canton, Massachusetts. Let's get right to it. Last week, we discussed Matthew Israel and the history of Behavior Research Institute, the accounts of abuse and use of physical adversives to treat both autistic adults and children and those with psychiatric and intellectual disabilities. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, you might want to skip back and catch up. We went over a lot. Let's pick up right where we left off. It's 1985. Matthew Israel and BRI faced opposition from the Massachusetts Office for Children, thanks to Mike Avery. Y'all remember him, right? He's the one the very thought of torturing or cutting up into little pieces made Matthew Israel smile. Israel actually said that right in front of a reporter. Well, according to Boston Magazine, Office for Children, or OFC for short, issued an order to close the Behavior Research Institute due to the hundred or so licensing violations, not to mention the torture and the fact that Israel and BRI were using unapproved physical aversives. Israel and the school, of course, appealed the closure and countersued the Office for Children. A judge actually recommended BRI stop using aversives altogether. This should have been the end of the story, but it's not. BRI fired back, claiming that without the treatment, and I use that term very loosely, the school said its students seriously regressed. Obviously, Israel argued that this meant his therapy was working. But other experts disagreed. A report from one of the New York agencies, remember, there were two investigating them since BRI housed about 15 New York residents at the time. Well, that report stated, the children, quote, are controlled by the threat of punishment. When that threat is removed, they revert back to their original behaviors. Controlled by the threat of punishment. Almost sounds like mind control, don't it? Israel and his staff at BRI weren't even attempting to understand why the students were displaying behaviors they deemed dangerous. They were just punishing the behavior until it stopped. They didn't care if that took 223 spanks to the thighs and buttocks, 98 muscle squeezes to the thighs, shoulders, and triceps, 740 finger pinches to the buttocks, thighs, feet, and hands in a 15 and a half hour period as student H had received, according to Avery's report. Do the math and that's 1,061 punishments over a 15 hour time frame. 
that's more than a punishment a minute for 15 hours straight. But hey, student H wasn't displaying dangerous behavior. Israel and BRI considered that a win. And let's be clear. Student H was punished, consecrated, whatever language BRI wants to use, for, quote, aggressive acts and banging his head. Let's be super clear about something else. I don't know about you, but if someone pinched me over 700 times, I'm going to get aggressive, I assure you. But I'm sure student H was properly restrained prior to the torture. I mean, treatment. And headbanging? He's hurting himself, so let's hurt him so he learns not to hurt himself anymore. Makes perfect sense. Sorry, y'all. My blood boils every time. BRI also deprived students of food to punish bad behavior, which was not approved by the OFC. Student P was deprived of 46 whole-ass meals and didn't get portions of 17 over a 25-day span. That's nearly two meals every day. Food was now a bargaining chip for behavior. Y'all, we don't even deprive death row inmates of food, but we don't spank, pinch, or shock them either. When things looked like they were going in favor of the OFC and advocates for the disabled, Israel pulled a trick from his sleeve. According to Boston Magazine, in 1986, Israel brought one of his most self-abusive students before Judge Ernest Rotenberg at a hearing at the Bristol County Probate Court. He detailed the student's history of self-injury and Judge Ernest Rotenberg ruled that she was unable to make her own treatment decisions, going on further to say that if she were, she'd choose BRI. Remember the propaganda videos BRI was accused of making? You know, making Danny Oswald look super dangerous? I mean, I'm just saying. And Israel wasn't the only one in on the suit against OFC. Parents of students at the school stood by Israel and BRI, claiming BRI had saved their children. Seeing things weren't exactly going their way, the Office for Children settled with the Behavior Research Institute, the state actually paying $580,000. The state, so the taxpayers of Massachusetts. And remember, this is 1986. This is not chump change. And that wouldn't be the last time. Rotenberg allowed BRI to continue their use of adversives, although a few new stipulations were added. Each student's treatment plan now had to be approved by the probate court. A mediator was also appointed for future disputes. And that sounds well and good, but remember, this probate judge is seeing these students for a matter of minutes, and their so-called history is pitched to the judge by none other than Israel and BRI. BRI would later be renamed in 1994 to Judge Rotenberg Center, a nod to the judge who approved the use of physical adversives for students. What a legacy. A year after the ruling in June of 1987, another patient would be found unresponsive at BRI. According to the Associated Press, 29-year-old New York resident Abigail Gibson was found by BRI staff unresponsive in her bed. Ironically, it was the very day probate judge Ernest Rotenberg had extended the previous 1986 agreement allowing BRI to continue to use adversives under court supervision. The agreement, of course, was part of that settlement of the suit. Even more ironic, Abigail's mother was one of the parents who had filed suit against OFC a year earlier. 
According again to the Associated Press, Abigail was found slumped in her bed at a BRI group home in Attleboro. She was transported to Sturdy Memorial Hospital, where she died two days later. Abigail had suffered a heart attack in her sleep and unfortunately was unable to recover. She was 29 years old. A spokeswoman from BRI told the AP that Miss Gibson was, quote, mentally retarded, prone to seizures, and had autistic-like tendencies. The spokeswoman confirmed that physical aversives were a part of her therapy. I need to stop here for a second. I absolutely hate the way Abigail is referred to here. It hurts my soul and makes my skin crawl to repeat those words, but it's important for you to get a clear picture of the time and BRI's attitude toward the very people it was meant to serve. According to an article at Autistic Hoya, Abigail's treatment plan, which included spanking, pinching, and cold water showers, was approved just three days prior to her death. An investigation was launched into Abigail's death, but ultimately found no evidence linking her death to the therapy she was receiving at BRI. Some people might say it's very suspicious that aversives were added to her treatment plan just three days prior. It's me. I'm some people. It would only be three years before another BRI student was dead. According to Boston Magazine, in 1990, Linda Cornelson was a 19-year-old student at BRI. She was intellectually disabled and nonverbal. One day, on the bus ride to school, she began clutching at her stomach. Once she arrived at school, she lay down on a couch. A nurse came to evaluate her, but thought she was faking her illness. After school that day, Linda was taken to her group home in Attleboro, which was also ran by BRI. Staff administered 13 spatula spankings, 29 finger pinches, 14 muscle squeezes, and forced her to inhale ammonia five times. All this according to a report later filed by the Massachusetts Department of Mental Retardation. Linda was eventually transported via ambulance to a hospital where she died. She died in the hospital early the next morning from complications related to a gastric perforation. Her mother said she had never had gastrointestinal problems before. Gastric perforation is a literal hole in the stomach, large bowel, or small intestine. It's extremely painful and requires emergency treatment. Linda suffered in pain and tried to show it, but no one listened. And maybe it was even worse than that. According to an article on Autistic Hoya, Linda's punishments had dramatically increased over the two days prior to her death. Is it possible that she was being consequated for crying out? Or maybe making medical claims without foundation? Because we know from testimony of survivors that both of those are punishable offenses. What punishment depends on your behavior chart. And while the department's report said the school, quote, violated the most basic codes and standards of decency, it concluded that neither the dereliction of her care nor the administration of the aversives had killed her. Linda died seven years, two months, and 88,719 aversives after she arrived at Behavior Research Institute. It was around this time that shock would be introduced to the students at BRI. If you recall last week, this was something Matthew Israel had been contemplating since back in 1985 when he spoke to the Boston Phoenix, stating, 
I've never used electric shock. I wouldn't rule it out, particularly if we were deprived of other procedures. It's more effective and you wouldn't bruise or cut the skin. Maybe staff forcing the residents to wear the long sleeve shirts and long pants to cover the marks and bruises had become too troublesome. Perhaps making staff hold off on aversives before state and family visits to cover the holes pinched into the soles of students' feet was too complicated. Or maybe it was the fact that Israel believed shocking people would be more effective. For whatever reason, the shock started. But it didn't begin with the GED. First came the Self-Injurious Behavior Inhibiting System, or CIBIS, which Matthew Israel had purchased and was using on some students. According to John Hopkins' APL Technical Digest, published in 1984, quote, The CIBIS was a system that efficiently and consistently inhibited self-injurious behavior in severely intellectually disabled and autistic patients through the extensive use of microelectronics. How did it work? Well, a headband containing a sensor known as the sensor module was strapped to the patient's head. What was known as a stimulus model was strapped to the patient's arm. The stimulus model was what delivered the shock. If the sensor strapped to the head detected abnormal accelerations, it would transmit a digitally coded signal to the stimulus module on the arm. Once the signal was received, a buzzer sounded and a shock to the arm was delivered. The Sibis delivered a shock of 2 milliamps and lasted for 0.2 seconds. Let's all remember that the average strength of a police taser is also around 2 milliamps. But this was it. Israel had found a solution to the bruises and cuts his aversive therapy was leaving on its students. According to an article by Mother Jones, between 1988 and 1990, the Sibis was used on 29 students most notably a student named Brandon. Brandon was 12 years old, and he did exhibit several self-injurious behaviors. He would bite his tongue, hit himself in the head, and regurgitate meals. Israel thought he could cure this behavior through shocks. Part of Brandon's behavior plan required him to keep his hands on a paddle. If he took his hands off, he would get shocked. One day, Brandon received 5,000 shocks. 5,000 shocks in a single day. Israel spoke to Mother Jones in an attempt to justify that outrageous number. Quote, You have to realize, I thought his life was in the balance. I couldn't find any medical solution. He was vomiting, losing weight. He was down to 52 pounds. I knew it was risky to use the shock in large numbers, but if I persevered that day, I thought maybe it would eventually work. There was nothing else I could think of to do, but by the time it went into the 3,000 or 4,000 range, it became clear it wasn't working. Hold up, wait. Brandon was shocked 5,000 times that day. If it was clear at the 3 to 4,000 range that it wasn't working, what were the other 1,000 shocks for? In 1994, Behavior Research Institute formally became known as Judge Rotenberg Center, or JRC, as I mentioned earlier. And if you thought things were going to get better at this point, you'd be wrong. Shocking Brandon 5,000 times without effect didn't make Israel question his methods. Of course not. It made him question the strength of the shock. The Sibis wasn't powerful enough. He needed something 
far more painful. He asked the manufacturer of the Sibis Human Technologies to make the device stronger, but they refused, so he got to work. His initial plan was to create something that started with a low current, but where the voltage could be increased as needed, but that just wasn't working out. Speaking to Mother Jones, Israel said, quote, As it turns out, that's really not a wise approach. It's sort of like operating a car and wearing out the brakes because you never really apply them strongly enough. Instead, we set it at a certain level that was more or less going to be effective for most of our students. I just want to know how he decided what was going to be more or less effective for most of the students. Anyhow, the Graduated Electronic Decelerator, or GED, was born. The original was capable of a 15 to 20 milliamp shock. But even that wouldn't be enough for Matthew Israel. When students didn't seem quite so affected by the shock, once again, instead of taking a good hard look at what he was doing, he just upped the ante and created the GED-4, which was three times more powerful than the original with a 45.5 milliamp shock. The GED and GED-4 are still in use at Judge Rotenberg Center today. In fact, there are 55 residents at JRC at the time of this recording strapped to these machines. And while Matthew Israel and JRC aren't the first to use shock to treat behaviors, they are the last. Judge Rotenberg Center is the only place in the United States that shocks its students. Even those who have used shock or physical adversives in the past have abandoned the practice long ago and now condemn it. Even B.F. Skinner, you know, Mr. Operant Conditioning himself, didn't believe in punishment the way Matthew Israel did. And then there was Dr. Lovis. According to an article published in Life magazine in 1965, Lovis strongly believed in techniques such as providing physical consequences, withholding physical touch, and attention, isolation, and giving electric shock therapy in a shock room where the floor was laced with metallic strips. Sounds kind of like an operant conditioning chamber if you ask me. Lovis also shocked small children with cattle prods as part of his therapy. Lovis is the pioneer of applied behavior analysis, or ABA, which is the most common therapy for those on the spectrum today. ABA has come a long way, but there is a very dark past there that needs to be acknowledged. Lovis's practices were absolutely barbaric. I could do a whole series on his BS alone. And this isn't meant to throw shade at ABA, believe me. But the truth is the truth, and it has to be told. But eventually, even Lovis gave up on shocking patients to change behavior, speaking to CBS in 1993, stating, that the shock was, quote, only a temporary suppression because patients become unaffected to the pain. These people are so used to pain that they can adapt to almost any kind of aversive you give them, he said. These people. This guy really said these people. Once again, even this guy gave up on shocking people. Mother Jones spoke to another expert, one who is actually a consultant on the development of the Sibis, Dr. Brian Awada. He later became a professor of psychology and psychiatry at the University of Florida and was a nationally recognized authority on treating severe self-abuse among children with developmental disabilities at the time. 
Dr. Iwata actually visited the Rotenberg Center and described its approach as dangerously simplistic, stating, There appears to be a mission of that program to use shock for problem behaviors. It doesn't matter what that behavior is. He, speaking on Israel, may have gotten his PhD at Harvard, but he didn't learn what he's doing at Harvard. Whatever he's doing, he decided to do it on his own. And then there was Paul Touchette, who also studied with B.F. Skinner and had known Israel since the 1960s. Touchette also treated children with autism who exhibited self-injurious behavior, but he wasn't a fan of what Israel had going on, stating, Punishment doesn't get at the cause. It just scares the hell out of its patients. All this again, according to Mother Jones. While the field was clearly moving away from all this nonsense, Israel was doubling down, getting more and more students bussed in from other states. Now he wasn't just taking in those with severe intellectual disabilities or those suffering from psychiatric disorders or those on the spectrum. No, no, he was taking in students with ADHD, bipolar disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and students just labeled as having emotional problems. Some even transferred from the juvenile justice system, according to AutisticAdvocacy.com. The number of students Matthew Israel and JRC administered their therapy to was growing rapidly. And the behaviors they were being shocked for were also growing. And I want to add here, according to former students, all the other physical aversives weren't dropped with the GED and the GED4. They were just an addition. JRC still used restraints, food contingent programs, helmets, and isolation, among other things. It all depended on the student's behavior chart, exactly who was punished for what and what that punishment was. Former teacher's assistant at JRC Greg Miller spoke to Boston Magazine. He was an employee for three years. Greg would later go on to testify about what he witnessed on Beacon Hill. Greg revealed that the worst part of working at JRC was shocking students for everyday behaviors. He testified that a student was once shocked for stopping work for more than 20 seconds. Another, a girl with cerebral palsy, was shocked for moaning and reaching out to hold a staffer's hand. She was reaching out to hold a hand and shocked for it. Let that sink in. Another was shocked for closing his eyes for more than five seconds. A student asked for over two hours to go to the bathroom. Her requests were denied. After she could hold it no longer, she urinated her pants. She was shocked. Yet another student was shocked because he yelled when he saw another student about to be shocked. According to Greg's testimony, this happened all the time. He recalled when another staffer warned him to always announce to the class when he needed to reach for something in his pocket, you know, because the boxes with the button to deliver the shock were hanging there on the belt near his pocket. He said that one time when he forgot to announce that he was just reaching in his pocket, the four kids with him screamed. Greg Miller stated, quote, All of these behaviors had to be consequated with a GED electric shock. There were no exceptions. A scream was a scream, a grab was a grab, and we had to follow court-approved orders. And if they didn't, staff would get evaluated and might even lose their jobs. 
the administration would know if staff failed to shock a student for a shockable offense. How, you ask? The cameras. They're everywhere in every room of the school, in every residence, and have been since 1975. JRC has certain staffers called quality control who literally sit in a control room both day and night in front of a wall of television monitors and computer screens. They're always watching and listening. Always. And it's all done to be absolutely sure students are shocked for every bad behavior. Seriously, that's the reason. Well, it's one of them. If the staff there with the student doesn't catch a behavior, then a call is made to quality control phones in that room. The staff is informed of the so-called inappropriate behavior, and the staffer that's there with the student administers the shock. An opportunity to punish is never to be missed. You really can't make this shit up, folks. The other reason is for something JRC calls performance improvement opportunities which is just a really fancy way of saying snitching. Employees are encouraged to watch and snitch on one another. For example, a teacher in a classroom refuses to shock a kid. He or she is written up or given a performance improvement opportunity. It's someone's job at the school to read and track these forms. Get too many of those bad boys and you're gone. But that wouldn't be the reason Greg Miller was no longer employed at JRC. He just couldn't take it anymore. He recounted feeling physically ill because he could see the anxiety on a student's face the moment before they were shocked. One student gave out a high-pitched, no, 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 and then tried to keep his mouth closed as not to be consecrated again. Another student was strangely emotionless during the shock but after would moan quietly to himself. Greg resigned after a student he knew well was shocked for attempting to go to the bathroom without permission, then for refusing a teacher's order, then for trying to take the GED off his arm. Greg nearly collapsed after the boy was shocked for the third misbehavior. He couldn't do it another day. He was done. All this again, according to Boston Magazine. And those are just a few of the accounts. There are so many documented accounts of abuse, it's honestly overwhelming. At some point, JRC decided once again to change things up and deliver the GED and GED4 shocks with a few added elements. Some students were shocked while restrained to a four-point restraint board. They were face down, restrained by each arm placed over their heads in separate restraints, each leg fully extended and in a restraint. Staff at JRC would then take out the box with the student's photo and press the button that delivered a shock to one of the electrodes on the student's body whenever the staff was ready. The student wouldn't know which electrode was going to shock them. Would it be the right arm, left arm, right leg, left leg, maybe the stomach? The not knowing the precise moment in which they would be shocked or which electrode would be activated only added to the torture. Also keep in mind that students wear these electrodes 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. A shock is possible at any time. Can you imagine the fear? And again, Israel had more in store for his students. There is also something known as a GED seat board. One survivor accounted to miscellanynews.org, quote, 
I was put in a GED seat board, strapped onto a chair. They turned a key to turn it on, and it would automatically trigger a shock if I stood up without asking. I was in the chair for several months. I was also put in a room by myself and put in a four-point chair, feet and chest tied to the chair. I was strapped to the chair except when I was sleeping for four months. I don't even have the words. Another survivor recounted a time when a student, let's call him Z, was being consecrated with the GED seat. Z was working on his task, which was counting and bundling popsicle sticks, because that's a thing. See, idle time isn't allowed at JRC. If you're not in the classroom staring at a screen, you're doing work. Bundling the sticks was one task. This was known as piecework. The sticks were bundled for candy apple kits for a food company. And while one can only assume that JRC was getting money for the hard work of its students, according to former students, they weren't being paid as they should have been. They were supposed to receive a penny a bundle. But if one student bundled five and another a hundred, the average was just taken for the room for the day. Back to Z. So he's there in the GED seat bundling away. He was restrained to that seat but left just enough room so he could still work. I mean, this doesn't at all sound like a sweatshop, right? While Z was there bundling away, he was delivered a shock. You see, the GED seat has sensors. So when he had to reach just a little too far to grab a popsicle stick, his weight shifted just enough that it caused the GED to go off. He had literally done nothing wrong. He was trying to reach the damn stick. He was frustrated. I mean, rightly so. But according to this former student, the staff member said to Z, well, that's what you get when you're in the GED seat. Are you freaking kidding me? And GEDs going off for absolutely zero reason isn't exactly uncommon. There are multiple reports of them just going off and shocking students. JRC actually had to develop a word for that. It's called a misapplication. That's sure putting it lightly. JRC actually has a language they like to use to kind of dress up what they're doing. Shock, for instance, is not a shock. It's a GED application. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. We've talked about a couple others, but it's legit a whole nother language. I mean, you can dress up a skunk any which way you want, and at the end of the day, it's still a stangle skunk. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to leave you right there. We're running out of time for today. I hate to do this to y'all, but there is so much more to cover. Next week, you'll hear more accounts of former students and staff members. You'll learn why Matthew Israel is no longer the executive director of JRC, and it all has to do with destruction of evidence, 24-hour monitoring, and a prank call. A prank call, you say? Oh yeah, a prank call. As always, you can find more information on my Instagram, at least underscore of these, or my Facebook, at least of these. New episodes drop every Thursday. Believe me, you don't want to miss next week. More information can also be found at AutisticHoya.net. Lydia Brown has done an amazing job of creating a living archive of Judge Rotenberg Center's abuses. I'll link that in the show notes. So much more information can be found there. You can also go to Occupy the Judge Rotenberg Center on Facebook. The folks over at Occupy JRC 
have been at the forefront of this battle for over two decades. Thank you for listening. We need to end this nightmare for those still strapped to shock devices at JRC today. Please help get this story out to as many as you can. Today, I leave you again with the amazing Jennifer Masumba and her original song, Runaway. Go ahead, girl. Show them what you're made of. stare out of the window be still they're watching you watching you just do as you're told this is no place of privilege it's just lonely and Cause you've made it